Hello and welcome to Resourceful, stories from the site, proudly brought to you by Resources Unearthed. At Resources Unearthed, we help executives, professionals and business owners in mining and resources to be successful both personally and professionally. We've created this podcast to help you in your employment or business, and we'll be chatting to people who have a proven track record of success in the industry. Thanks for joining us. Today on the podcast, we're sharing a conversation our contributor Craig Barry had with Scott Linderblad on the Digging with Accountants podcast. We found this conversation to be highly valuable and hope that you enjoy. If you'd like more information about the Digging with Accountants podcast, head to our show notes. Joining me today is my colleague, Scott Linderblad. Scott, what are, some of the, what are some of the considerations you talk about to your clients when they are setting up a consulting business? Thanks, Craig. Uh, yeah, look, I think there are always a few considerations to be had. And obviously, we get through people coming down all the time and saying, look, I just need to set up a company straight away. I'm a contractor. This is what I need to do, set my own business up. And while maybe that might be appropriate, I think that before we even get into what type of structure, we need to actually think about you know, what are the costs involved, what are the, what's the purpose, and are there actual some commercial reasons for it? So, you know, the three initial structures that we do think about is, do we trade as a sole trader? So does the client go and get an ABN and then just issue invoices out of their personal name? And then the alternative is, do we set up a family trust? So a trading trust where they will invoice through the trust or do they set up a company and invoice through the company? Now, there are three different structures there. While all yield the same outcome from an invoicing perspective, in reality, there's significant tax differences, cost differences, and just commercial differences there. So one of the things that we look at here is, well, let's look at the cost. If we're gonna set up an ABN, there's no cost involved. You go online, set it up nice and straightforward. Um, but sometimes contracting through your personal name isn't going to work for you. So we might look at setting up a trust or a company. Now there's going to be a bit more costs involved. Uh, with, a, with a trust, you'll have to work out whether you're going to have an individual trustee or you're going to have a company as a trustee. So that can um, increase the costs. And then with a company, you're just going to have the straight company. Now they're your sort of initial setup costs, which can be fairly straightforward, but they can be in the range of a couple of thousand dollars. Then the other consideration is your ongoing cost. So if you set up a company and a trust, you're going to have to lodge financial statements and income tax returns, and that can be an annual cost, as well as having some ASIC fees and the other accounting fees involved there. If it's just in your personal name with an ABN, there's no real additional costs. Any income um, from your consultancy will just be added to your personal tax return. It may add a few extra costs there, but it shouldn't yield any significant increases. So cost is obviously something to consider, but it's definitely not a determinative factor. Um, The next one we look at then is, well, what's the purpose of it? Is it just that you're going to do a few consulting gigs here or there and it's not really going to be a long-term consultancy? It's just for some specific contracts and you're just here to uh, get involved for a short period of time. Maybe an ABN will work perfectly as a sole trader. 
or is it that you're going to be needing some asset protection? So if you're going to be engaging in high-risk contracts where if something goes wrong, you're going to have to cough up the to fix it, then all of a sudden, any assets you own personally could be up for grabs as well. So you may want to shield yourself by having a layer of protection such as a company or a trust to sit in front of you. And so when the contract's in place, the contract is between that entity and the vendor. And so that'll just give you that extra step of asset protection whereby if something goes wrong, uh, while it doesn't always guarantee you'll be left out, it at least puts that next layer there to say that if it was just an absolute uh, you know, just business case where it didn't work out, then the company or the trust will deal with that. And hopefully in your, in your case, the uh, personal assets won't be up for grabs in any sort of blowback from the contracting entity. However, obviously there's a, a lot more in the legal position there, which we won't comment on. And then the other one that we do come across as well, especially in the mining area is commercial reasons. So if you're dealing with large entities, you know, your Glencores, your Rio, your BHP, all the large ones, they may not want to deal with an individual, right? They may want you to have a company because as a personal policy, as a company policy, they only deal with companies. And same if you're contracting with governments, uh, state government, federal government, a lot of them will say that, no, we only want uh, companies in place. So whether you need a company or not may just simply be dictated by the type of person you're engaging with. So there are our initial views as to what we would think about when looking to set up a structure. And one thing that we always say is you've got to look at what is the long-term view here. So you know, you've got your purpose, your commercial reasons and your costs. But always have a think ahead and look at the future and say, well, is this going to be something that is ongoing and you want to really build out from it? Well, because we really need to factor that in as opposed to this is just a short term contract or something that, you know, do we really want to go through the cost of setting up all these structures, bank accounts, et cetera, et cetera, for something that is going to be over in six or 12 months. But definitely, I think there are our starting points. But what about you, Craig? When obviously that's my view and then the next step is obviously how to implement it what do you do next after you've spoken with a client we've come across all these three areas cost purpose commercial reasons and now we've decided on a certain structure uh, give us a bit of an insight into the uh, implementation of this sure so typically if the decision has been made to implement a structure to consult through the next question is typically what sort of structure do you need? So as Scott, as you mentioned before, there's a number of different structures or basic structure types uh, you can use. So you mentioned trusts and companies, obviously, and, and individual sole traders. Um, there's also you know partnerships and super funds that you know might get considered from time to time. So these structures on their own are reasonably basic, but once you consider that these structures can actually be combined to form larger groups, there's actually a multitude of different structures that might potentially be formed. So you might have a company with a trust shareholder, or you might have a partnership with a couple of trusts or those sorts of things. And so the actual potential sort of permutation of the combinations is you know quite mind-boggling when you start thinking about it. So 
because there is such a wide and, and varied amount of structures that could potentially be um, set up for you, this is where making sure that you know working with an experienced accountant or lawyer or business advisor is, is quite critical. We often see situations where new clients come to us for advice and assistance because for whatever reason they've been set up in the wrong structure and, and this could be for any number of reasons where potentially they've set up the structures themselves, we see that quite a lot, or, or maybe they've just sort of gone to their local sort of individual sole trader sort of accountant or lawyer um, and they don't have a lot of experience setting up these sorts of structures and they've just set up you know something fairly basic but at the end of the day it hasn't been fit for purpose or alternatively where a structure has been set up and maybe it did make sense at the at the time it was set up but maybe the business is outgrowing that structure we see that a fair bit as well where you know we help clients potentially restructure out of structure that no longer is catering to the needs of their business and getting them into a better structure and we do that reasonably regularly or otherwise sometimes the structure hasn't been set up in the most optimal way you know so for example we might have individual shareholders where maybe having trust shareholders might yield a better outcome um, or you know having trust you know holding certain assets and those sorts of things might be a bit better so sometimes we get involved with sort of trying to massage structures that are otherwise pretty good but just trying to massage it to try and get that, that best outcome and what we find you know thinking about some of those issues is that a lot of the decision making around structuring centres not only on the current circumstances and what you're trying to achieve in the short term, but as much as we can possibly do, understanding what the future plans and expectations are of the business and of the client and, and giving the client the alternatives as to, well, if we were to set this up today with you know a very short-term focus, it's going to be this. But if we look at a long-term focus and your long-term goals of you know maybe they want to grow their consultancy into having half a dozen other staff and you know potentially other owners and things like that that can really skew that decision making in terms of what the structuring looks like so that's typically what I think about when I'm advising my clients on on how to set up their or what I would suggest in setting up their structures sometimes clients just want simple if they want simple then you know that's easy you take that on board you might just be a you know just a straight company or you know sole trader might might be sufficient um, or otherwise they might be thinking oh you know I want to take over the world I'm going to set up you know this this U-Butte structure and you know so it's set up for, for that long-term growth and um, you know flexibility. Yeah I think uh, Craig that's definitely something that we see a lot that uh, you've got the uh world is your oyster client who uh, wants the U-Butte structure from the start but I think one thing that we can definitely say is you know keep your structure simple where possible Uh, makes life a lot easier and always understand why you've actually got your structure in place you don't have to be an accountant but you should have some basic understanding as to what this company here or this trust here is for Um, and then that way you know that it's actually there for a purpose Um, Another thing I'd say there, uh, and you know, you were spot on there, Craig, with regards to, you know, you might start out with a consultancy and over time that consultancy of just you turns into six, seven employees and business partner comes on board and all of a sudden you've got a real business there. Um, And that can happen before you know it. You've been going 12, 24 months, next minute's five years and boom, here you are. The one thing that I always recommend is make sure that you are reviewing this or your accountant is giving you this advice annually that we're we're actually looking at your structures and thinking about what's happening next year, what's happening in the next three years for this business because we see it far too often where the client hasn't been advised and they've just sort of grown this consultancy into a, a large business 
and now it's too late or, or it's not too late but the restructuring can become a bit more costly as the business gets bigger so you know Craig and I generally focus on the approach of let's at least have this discussion each year as opposed to uh, wait until it's happened and all of a sudden it's got a bit too big so it's just about staying on top of it and uh, making sure that your structure is fit for purpose at each stage of the business. Brilliant. So, so Scott, let's say that you know we've had this discussion with the client and we've decided, yep, we're going to set up a structure and we've worked out what the structure is, whatever that happens to be. What sort of questions do you typically get asked for, from that point onwards by your client about to start business or they're a couple of years in and those sorts of things? Um, what sort of issues typically come up that you have to deal with your clients about? Yeah, look, that's a great question. Uh, I think let's play standard sort of um, approach. We've set up a company, right? Just a straight company. We're going to consult through that company. Uh, What are the the general questions that pop up? You know, the first thing, can I split my income? That'd be number one all the time. Can I give my income? I'm now got five, six hundred thousand coming through this business. Can I now give a couple hundred thousand to my wife and kids and then keep that tax rate safe down at that sort of 25-30% rate across the family instead of if it was just in your personal name as an employee at 47%? Uh, yeah, look, generally, uh, no, we cannot split that income just because you have a company. We still need to have a look at the basis of the contract that you're involved in and we need to have a look at who is undertaking all that personal work involved. So there's a few uh, regimes in place there, uh, which some of our clients may be aware of, the personal services regime. And it's all about making sure that just because you have a structure in place, that doesn't mean that you can automatically split your income. And and look, day in, day out, we still get this, uh, and it doesn't matter. I, you know, I thought this is sort of accounting 101, that just because you have an entity, you can't actually split your income. But uh, look, we see it all the time. And, and, you know, I appreciate that advisors and clients want to push the boundaries as much as, pos- as possible. And, you know, what's the old saying? Don't pay a dollar more tax than you need to. And look, completely agree. But also, you've got to be realistic sometimes. And where the law is the law and... You can push it to a point, but you really still need to understand that if you can't split it, you can't split it. Yeah, I mean, I guess normally when I'm talking to my clients, I, I sort of explain to them that you, to them that your ability to split your income is it, it, on a bit of a spectrum. So at one of at one of the spectrum, you've got employees. So if you're an employee of a business um, and you're getting paid a salary, your ability to split your income to a spouse or to an associate is impossible you can't do it it's just how it is unfortunately at the other at the other end of the spectrum if you're in a full-blown business with a whole bunch of unrelated clients and you know a workforce of of um, principal staff working for you generating fees in your business then typically your ability to split income is a lot more uh, flexible so um, generally in those circumstances you just need to make sure you're paying yourself at least a, a market value salary or, or remuneration or return on investment but otherwise those business profits that you're making in that business you have quite a lot of flexibility in terms of do you need to do um, that if you'd like to retain it in your business typically you can if, you, if your structure allows so if you're in a company for example or otherwise your ability to split your income out to your kids or to your spouse is, partic- is potentially a lot more advanced in, in those sort of circumstances. Um, now, the, those two examples are 
quite extreme. Um, typically where we find most of our clients in this space though is sort of in the middle of that spectrum. So we've sort of got what we call our PSI or our attributable personal services income clients um, and sort of near that we've got our PSB or our personal services businesses clients and our PSI clients or attributable PSI clients are a bit closer to being an employee um, and typically the situation is where they only maybe have one client um, so it might be someone who uh, has gone out consulting and has picked up a, a consultancy with one of the big mining companies for example and basically you know 90 to 100 percent of their income comes from that one that one business you know they're getting paid by one of the big mining companies and provided that they're just more or less being paid on an hourly rate and the mining companies providing with everything that they need to to do that work typically what we'll find is their ability to split income to a spouse or child or to retain income is basically non-existent that pretty much all that income needs to be flowed through to them and they'll pay tax on that in their individual name that's that's that attributable PSI piece. I guess slightly more advanced from that is where you have your consulting business maybe has a handful of different you know key clients and they're all unrelated and you've started working for them based on sort of direct uh, approaches to each of those and you know there's these those tests to do with personal services businesses so around sort of the results test or unrelated clients test or business premises test and employment test I think it is um, so provided you meet one of those tests you are out of that triple PSI bucket and into this personal services businesses bucket what that allows you to do is a limited amount of income splitting with your spouse or associates and typically that's limited to actual work carried out by those by those associates in your business so what we often see is you might have the the key person so you know husband or wife doing the work directly with the you know with the business and, and generating the income and then you might have the other spouse for example doing the bookkeeping you know keeping track of the records dealing with you know paying the bills those, those sorts of things and they might get paid a, an arm's length hourly rate you know it might be you know 70 or 80 or 100 dollars an hour whatever the going rate might happen to be and then basically whatever's left over typically will make its way to to that principal person either through a salary or a dividend or a distribution or whatever the case is so um, is that typically what you see when you're dealing with your clients yeah, look, generally it is, and I think that uh, look, everyone gets a bit confused on PSI and PSB yep. and all these acronyms that yep. the ATO love to put out there. Yeah. Uh, but I think the one thing to sort of clarify there is when it's personal services income, as you said, Craig, that income is mainly you doing all the work. Yep. It's all contracted to you. you. You may only have one client or two clients maybe, and it's... You know, you don't really part meet any of the tests involved to uh, be eligible to be a personal services business. Yep. Um, so all that income goes to you and there's limits on the types of deductions you can claim as well around there. However, where you then meet some of the appropriate tests, where it might be the results tests, yep. then you become a personal services business. Just because you are now what they call a PSB, that doesn't actually mean you can now just split all your income. Yep. All right? What that means is you may have more opportunities to claim other deductions, potentially the instant asset write-off yep. because you're now a business. As you mentioned there, Craig, pay your spouse uh, market rate wage and those sort of opportunities open up. So there's a few more deductions that can be claimed because it is more of a business-like enterprise. 
Um, but it doesn't mean that automatically you can just start splitting your income yep. you know, because that is a common thing I do see. And, and that's really where getting an advisor who is experienced in this area is so critical. More often than I care to count, we've had clients come to us who have been sort of splitting their income willy-nilly and it's a bit of a, com- a difficult conversation sometimes to sort of explain to them, you know, the way it's been done in the past it isn't going to cut the mustard and, you know, they've potentially got some risk in association with their tax affairs with the way that's been done. So. It really is critical, you know, throughout this process, make sure that you keep talking to your advisors and make sure that they're on board with with what your plans are. So what are your thoughts then, Scott? If you're that principal consultant in your your structure, um, what are your thoughts about paying yourself a salary and paying super? Yeah, look, that's always a a good question. Um, You know, do I need to pay myself a wage? Well, look, it really comes down to what are you doing? What's the expectation of profits? You know, do you know how much cash flow is going to be coming in? Um, and, and a lot of times where I see it is just a straight contractor and basically all that money is going to be paid out to them. We will generally have a bit of a mix. You know, it might be that we pick a wage, uh, could be a standard, a couple hundred thousand dollars might be the standard wage and that'll make sure that the super contributions are all met up to the concessional limits, obviously. Um, and then at the end of the year, it might be a director's fee or a dividend once we confirm what the balance of the income is. And, you know, I find that way the clients have paid a portion of tax throughout the year and then they'll have a, a top up tax bill on the rest of the profits. And ideally, that will sort of even out. And sometimes they too will push you then into the tax instalment regime where the following year you'll then have to pay quarterly tax anyway. And if you are on a quarterly tax instalment regime, then bumping up your wage a bit higher may be more appropriate. So it really comes down to your circumstances. I mean, we still have plenty of clients who don't pay themselves a wage. They prefer the large tax bill at the end of the year. They put their lump sum super contribution in and that works for them that's fine as well i guess i'm someone who likes to at least especially for our clients you know avoid the surprise of large tax bills and try and manage that in the best way possible so i'm always uh, you know of the view that if you know you're going to be getting at least 150 200 in your personal name at at minimum well then there's no harm in paying that wage because that's just going to help you when it comes to the tax time what about you craig yeah i agree with all that i think it's typically a conversation with the client around sort of their own ability around budgeting and you know if they're a client that tends to spend money as soon as they make it then you might say to them well how about we pay your salary throughout the year yeah, so you make sure you've got your, your tax put aside um, and getting that super put aside throughout the year is also quite useful because um, you know it can be a little bit tricky sometimes like you said if you get to the end of the year and you're talking to your client about putting twenty seven and a half thousand dollars into super you know it might not exist yeah and so yeah, you, you know, haven't got the money on the, the sun yeah, yeah whereas if you can sort of make you know if you can sort of chip away in you know two grand to in a big grand per month as you're paying yourself a salary then at least you can get that money into super throughout the year and maybe it doesn't make as much of a difference if you sort of broken down a smaller bit so that's not a bad idea so I guess one that I typically get and you know, I guess it's become more and more common with the instant asset write-off and you know some of the asset write-off concessions that, that have come about since COVID in particular is so I've got my, my structure and I'm doing my consulting business can I slash should I buy myself a company car oh I love this one you know every time every time it gets to 30 June and we're doing a bit of tax planning the clients come out can I get myself a new car <laughs> And, you know, first and foremost, don't buy a car 
just to get a tax deduction, right? Buy a car if you need one or want one, and you know, and you're and, and you'll actually your, use it in your business. Yeah, exactly. But you know, at the end of the day. The ATO is all across motor vehicles being used for personal use, and there are so many, you know, inhibits inhibitors to doing it, and the pen, you know not penalties, but just repercussions of rushing out, buying a car in a in a uh, company, for instance, and, and a lot of times you'll see someone coming and be like, "Great, I've just bought myself a hundred fifty thousand dollar Land Rover." And you're like, oh, fantastic. How often do you use that? Oh, well, I, I drive from home to work. Yep. And on and the weekends, I take it to the beach. <laughs> yeah, and then I'm on the beach. And I'm like, okay, so how much is actual travel to Klein or anything along those lines? And they're like, oh, look, you know, it's heaps. And I go, all right, well, let's do a logbook. And then they do a logbook, and it's about 10, 20% business use. And, you know, the rest is all personal. Yeah. And the problem is when you especially when you're buying over the car limit which yeah. is you know the car limit at the moment about is about 60,000 60, yeah. so that means if you buy a car for $150,000 one you're only going to get a deduction up to 60,000 right and then then you're going to apply your actual work related use so if you spend $150,000 on this land rover you're looking to claim 60,000 as a deduction but then you've only got 20% as work-related use. So you get 12000 So you're only actually going to get a $12,000 deduction on this $150,000 car, which is now the company name. You're going to pay FBT and all that sort of stuff, yeah. The fringe benefits tax uh, on that car is going to be phenomenal. Yeah, it'd be uh, about 30 grand a year. Yeah, and the, yeah. the problem what a lot of people don't understand is the fringe benefits tax, so this is the uh, tax on uh, you know personal, personal use, use items within yep. a company or a, a structure, it's calculated on the full $150,000 purchase price, not just the $60,000 car limit, and this is where you get caught out a lot. And then on top of that, you've only claimed you know 1000 bucks of GST after you account for your personal use, and then when you go to sell the car, you got to pay GST on all of it. You got to pay GST on the whole thing, even yep. if it's you know a hundred thousand dollars. So, yep. look, a lot of times I see it that if you're going to be buying a car for work and it is actually going to be 80 percent or more um, work-related use, and it's actually really more intended to be a work vehicle. Yeah, as long as it's not yep. over that depreciation limit as well, typically. Yep. Yeah, and, and look, that's always a tricky one. You know, uh, the car, is, cars yeah. these days are not cheap, yep. especially at the moment with yes. all the import in um, delays. Um, you know, if you can get something around that sixty thousand dollar mark, fantastic. That's where you're going to get the most benefit. If you're, you know, seventy, eighty percent or more work-related use, you actually have a logbook to prove that, yep. um, not just an estimate. Yep. And you can um, keep it around that sixty thousand dollar mark. Well, yep. that's probably going to be your best outcome. But if it's anything else, then realistically, a lot of times, you know, I tell my clients, look, just buy just it in your own name. Buy in your own name. Yep. You know, you can still claim the five thousand k deduction if you're just yep. doing some or travel for work. If you think. Yep, yep, and um, you can still, if you are doing the logbook, and there is a bit more, maybe be thirty or forty yep. percent, but that's still better to claim in your name yep. against the wage that you're paying yourself from the company, yep. and that's going to be a much better outcome. But yeah, look, I, I do see it all the time. Everyone yep. rushes out, great, I can now. I've got my ABM for my car. I can go rush and get a car, yep. and. 
I just kind of say, look, before you do that, let's just have a discussion yeah. about what this really looks yeah. like. Yeah. And and I've just said it far too often, you know, the, the fringe benefits tax just completely outweighs any deductions you get half the time. Correct. And, um, yeah. Definitely a thought to be considered um, before you rush out and get it. And I agree with your original comment on that is don't buy a car just because you can get the deduction. So, yeah. so that's the worst thing. I mean... Typically, when we're talking to clients about tax planning and things like that, you know, we can sort of we talk about you know potentially the instant asset write-offs and things like like that and getting that deduction. But it's always always a, a caveat or disclaimer around only if you're going to be bringing forward asset purchases you, you would be making anyway. So you know, if you know that oh, I will have to buy a new car in the next 12 months or the next 18 months, something like that, you might think about well, let's bring that forward and claim the deduction now if it makes sense to do so, like you said. But if it's just a matter of oh, you know, I've made this profit, I want to get rid of it, so I'll buy a car. But I don't really need a car, but I'm just going to do it anyway, so I don't have to pay. Well, I think I don't have to pay tax, and you know, buying like you're really spending your money on a depreciating asset. You know, that the the benefit of doing so is really not going to be particularly you know useful to you in the longer term. So quite a few issues there to think about, but I think FPT is a real killer for that one, and I, yeah. I agree on that. So so next thing is is I'll set up my consulting business, and I'm just wondering, do I even need a bank account for my consulting business? Well, you know, surprisingly, we actually don't see them all the time. But um, look, I think at the end of the day, if you're trying to run this properly and have a, you've got a contract with your company and another entity, then you should always have a bank account, right? At the end of the day, especially if you get into a position where that business does get a bit bigger, and then you're trying to say that you wanted to potentially split some income as it evolves, well, the HR is gonna look at that and say, well, you've always baked that income in your personal name. You know, we don't agree that that's even anything other than just your income. Yep. So by all means, I, I'm always a big believer, and yes, it, it is a bit of a pain these days to yep. go and set up a bank yep. account, especially if you have a trust and the flow through that yes. the banks require, all the yep. anti-money laundering um, forms and everything. So, but you do need a bank account in there and just making sure that, you know, number one, all income is banked in there. Yep. Two, all business expenses are paid out of it. Yep. And three, try and keep your personal expenses paid out of your personal bank account. Yep. That's generally the rule. And yep. Um, yep. if all our clients did that, fantastic. But I would probably be lying if I said they did. Yeah, I, mean, I, I guess typically what we'd find with that personal expenses piece is that um, if you've got a bookkeeper looking after your business, you'll probably save yourself a bit of money with your bookkeeper if you can keep your personal expenses out of your, yeah. out of your business, I find. Agreed. So, you know, if you are going to use your... Obviously, the reason why you're carrying on business is to, you know, support your, your life and to, to pay for your living expenses. But, you know, typically what we'd suggest is, you know, if you're paying yourself a salary, pay your personal expenses out of your salary, out of your own personal bank account and, you know, don't have all your, your groceries and all that sort of stuff running through your business account because... Or your gym memberships, yeah. which we do see. I don't understand we why see, you yeah. put your gym membership on your company credit card, but... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Some of the things that we see, Scott, I think will boggle the mind sometimes. So, yeah, it's one of those interesting things. So, um, so I think that's, I think that's been good. So, we've gone through the process of working out, well, should we have a structure in place? And we said yes. Um, we've sort of talked about some of the issues that we typically come across for clients of ours that have set up a structure and they're trying and they're trying to come to grips with what that structure means. I think the next step in this evolution is to talk about well, have it a, like a bit of a real life case study. So I, I've had an occasion recently to talk to a husband and wife couple, both working in the mining and resources industry. So they're husband and wife. They're both in their mid fifties. They've got adult kids. Um, so the kids are sort of moved out of home um, and they've got well paying jobs. So a husband and wife, they're also really well 
four paying jobs they're doing terrifically well paid off their mortgage and they've saved up about three million dollars which they've put into investments and into an offset and things like that everything's owned in their own name you know they've never seen reason to make things more complicated than that you know they're saving plenty of money so after tax they're saving you know let's say $150,000 a year um, and it's just all piling up in, in their investments and in their offset and bank accounts and things like that so the, the husband Steve he, he's he's a mining engineer and he's working for one of the big mining companies just as an employee he's got quite a senior role but um, he's an employee he doesn't have any necessarily any risk in relation to that particular role and his wife Jenny also in the mining industry she's been working as a consultant as a sole trader so so she made a decision back in the day that she'd do her consulting work through a sole trader um, and she's working for some of the really big mining companies as well so what's happened of late is, is Steve and Jenny husband and wife have come to us and asked us to review their circumstances and give them some advice about whether they have the best structure in place currently so Scott w w what are your thoughts about that sort of scenario yeah, look, this is, it is actually a pretty common scenario, isn't it? And look, I think that that's what we see quite a bit is that people have done quite well, they've got the income coming in and they've thought, you know what, it's just husband and wife, the kids are earning their own money, we don't have anyone else to distribute anything to, let's just have everything in our personal names. And, and yeah, that is a factor, that is definitely something that does come into play. But the first thing I think of is straight away, Look, they're all going to be at the top marginal tax rate. So any any income from those investments is going to be taxed at 47% straight away. So there's a deterrent. Jenny, running her own consultancy. Look, as a sole trader, given she's running with the big corporates, I would be a little bit concerned about what is her uh, liability there. Uh, and, you know, this is a perfect example of if she gets sued to rectify part of her contracts, then all the assets of their investments, so what have they got about $3 million in investments, would be in their names 50-50 potentially. Mm -hmm. So there's $1.5 potentially up for grabs straight yep. away. Yep. So look, I think you know there's a number of factors to consider when looking at how do we restructure these people. At a high level, we'd want to be looking at right, all those investments. We'd want to work out how can we restructure them into say an investment trust and we'd likely have a corporate trustee, so a company as trustee for that trust. And why would you have a corporate trustee, Scott? Uh, look, this one, actually look, this is a common issue, isn't it? Why can't we just have uh, individual Jenny be the individual trustee? Yep. Well, for starters, Jenny's running the consultancy business, yep. so that still puts her up for um, legal liability potentially and mm -hmm. as an individual trustee, it can still implicate her and the trust assets. With regards to admin as well, of any investments, every time you want to update an investment or you make a change or say, you know, you want to bring someone on, Jenny may now need to update her name or update her uh, details. Whereas if you just have a straight company, it doesn't matter who changes within that company, mm. that company is always the trustee. So yeah. it just makes life a lot easier. Yeah, I mean, I guess in my perspective, typically, especially like this couple here they're slightly older so you know they're in their mid 50s they're probably looking at retiring i'd say in the next sort of 10 or 15 years but you know because they are getting a bit older you know unfortunately life catches up with all of us and if you know if something was to happen to, to one of them the last thing that 
people want to do at that time of their life is to have to deal with you know changing owners on you know investments and things like that you know yeah. saying oh you know it was you know for example Steve is trustee for this trust and you know all the shares and all the investment properties or whatever the case is they're all saying you know Steve is the legal owner because you know yeah. the trustee is the legal owner of those assets and if for whatever reason Steve's not around anymore now I've got to change it all to Jenny or to something else then you know that's the last thing you want to be doing when you're trying to be you know when you're trying to mourn and you're trying to sort of get on with your life so having that company in place for that reason alone I think is well worth that extra cost and extra investment yeah and look I personally have dealt with that uh, with clients before and I can tell you you know I've had clients who their husbands passed away it was all still in his name as the trustee and it took four to five years um, for this client to actually finally get a new trustee set up with a company and then get it all transferred. And it was quite a mission, um, unfortunately, because there's a lot of proof that you have to provide, then you have to, and, and especially when you, know, you might have got past the grieving bit um, for now, and then you now have to go and deal with all this paperwork, providing death certificates, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And, Look, it's a completely unnecessary uh, piece that you need to go through. And I think that setting up that company, always an advocate of it. Uh, and especially if you have property, mm. uh, especially if you have property. I think definitely you don't want to have to be dealing with the titles office yep. or anything just to change property yep. um, details all the time. Yep. So Correct. yeah, look, so get, getting back to that, we had the investment trust, we'd have the corporate trustee there. And then look, Steve, he's an employee, nothing to do there um, other than any investments in his name. We'd obviously move to the investment trust. And then Jenny, she's running her own consultancy. So look, as we've discussed previously, I think just from an asset protection point of view and reducing reducing her risk, we'd at least like to look at potentially set up a consulting company. Now, all that income may still come out to Jenny um, because it may be that it's all PSI, it's all her work, but by having that extra layer there, it might potentially add some extra asset protection. And so that wouldn't be too big a concern for me. I think from the other point here, obviously when looking at this, it sounds nice and easy on the on paper, but other things to consider is that this may not happen all in one year. Yeah. Right? And I think that's what people gotta it might evolve. appreciate. Yeah, yeah. And, and it might be that we start with Jenny, we move her into the consulting company straight away. She may already have contracts in place. Yep. So we may not want to disturb them. Yes. But for new contracts exactly and so it might just be a bit of a transition period but at least we start the process Uh, and then on the investments uh, we've got to we'll have to obviously consider what are the capital gains tax there are there opportunities to transfer now are there opportunities to transfer later but or otherwise you know the 150 grand that they're saving up each year maybe that could be put into that directed trust. into the trust yeah. yep and then when the time's right yep. um, we can potentially transfer and, and what i find is it's more of just having the process and the plan laid out yep. and generally we'll work with a financial advisor along this case if they've got one um, to sort of manage that from a tax aspect and then also when they rebalance their portfolios so there's a whole number of considerations here but at the high level I think that we'd be looking to move all those investments out of their personal names into a trust where possible. And then, you know, I know people will then say, oh, but hang on, you have to distribute profits from that trust each year and that's just going to go back to Jenny and Steve. So what's the point? point? What do you say there, Craig? Well, I guess there's a couple of ways of looking at that. So I guess the first thing is, so Steve and Jenny both have well-paying jobs at the moment, 
but who's to say how long that they'll be working for? So, so there could come a time where maybe Steve might have retired and Jenny's still working or vice versa or maybe one of them's gone on sabbatical or whatever the case is and they don't have as much income as they've had in the past. Having that discretionary trust there holding the investments, generating investment income, means that we can be quite flexible in terms of distributing that income. So we can sort of look at, you know, for example, might be a year where Steve's had the year off because, you know, he, he's, you know, had enough, but he, he's planning on coming back, but he's decided to have a year off. Jenny's still busily working away doing her consulting work, but because Steve's not got any income for whatever, you know, because he's not working that particular year, we can direct that trust income to him and get quite a good tax outcome or, or vice versa, you know, you know, let's say, you know, or, you know, one of them gets injured or one of them gets some sort of injury, like you know, severe injury or something like that. Having the flexibility of being able to direct that income is quite useful. So so there's that. Um, and obviously, as they're getting older and, you know, there might be a bit of a mismatch as to when one or both retire, having that trust in place really caters to that potential outcome um, I guess the alternative is is that if they're still working if they're both still working still making quite a lot of income that what we can also look to set up is a corporate beneficiary so a corporate beneficiary is a, is a company and they're, they're quite common um, in, in family groups nowadays but basically that corporate beneficiary can receive some or all of that income distribution from that family trust and be taxed at the corporate tax rate of you know 30% I guess one thing just to bear in mind and you know Scott you've I know you've had to deal with this in the past as well is that issue around actually physically paying that money down into the corporate beneficiary and you know again the arrangement here could potentially play into that quite well because you know if we're thinking that they might retire in sort of 10 or 15 years then we can look maybe to push a fair bit of the profits into that corporate beneficiary while they're still working and earning good income and then potentially once they do retire maybe we can start trying to push some of those profits out of that corporate beneficiary and out to them individually and maybe recoup some of the, the, those franking credits or something like that. So there's quite a bit of strategy potentially involved there and it's really a matter for these guys is making sure you're sitting down with them you know once or twice a year and making sure that the the strategy is still consistent with what they're trying to achieve yeah i agree there and i think the the surplus cash flow is the key there as well if you don't need the money yep then Park sticking it. in the company yep. is perfect yep. because it, it deals with it permanently then doesn't it exactly you take it out and you can access it when you're ready yep. um, but well, at least you're aware that you've got tax to pay at that time and you've just got you know what i find the most is the the clients enjoy the flexibility you know they don't have to pay it out right now and look jenny all of a sudden next year could uh, finish up a contract and be in between contracts for a year or two who knows yep. and then we've got opportunities could be a big to... downturn in the industry yep. or something yeah so it's just I, and look i'm a big advocate for having flexibility and so the small cost for an extra company to set up and put this sort of strategy in place you could repay you tenfold quite easily so right. no no look yep. i agree with that and yeah, look, I think that's sort of our common scenario in this in this case. And what I would add is, you know, generally we'll fo- work with the financial advisor here, but the other thing that we would generally do is get the estate lawyer involved because, one, when you have a uh, putting your estate together, which hopefully Steve and Jenny would have, but many people always forget about, or obviously too busy, don't want to deal with that. Yeah, doing their wills, yeah. All that sort of thing, doing the wills. But once you start moving assets out of your personal name and into a trust, those assets no longer form part of your estate when you pass away. So it's really important that when you have structures involved, whether it be a company or a trust to hold investments, 
that you get your financial advisor, you get your accountant, and you get your estate lawyer in place together that are working with you as a team yep. to make sure that everything is dealt with so that all those assets are allocated how you want them yep. um, in the unfortunate um, event that you pass away. Yep. But that's probably the last thing I'd say there. Did you have anything else to add on that case today there, Craig? I was just going to mention with the directors as well. So it's, it's like it, sometimes with the husband and wife sort of structure, it's it's quite easy to say, well, they'll just each be directors of everything. So in, in the, I guess, the structure that we've sort of dreamed up for these couples of people. Um, so we've got a consulting company, we've got a corporate trustee company, and we've got a corporate beneficiary company. So there's three companies there. And often it's useful to have a bit more thought put into it um, as to who, who the directors of those companies should be, particularly where you've got such a difference in risk profile. So in this scenario, we've got the wife, Jenny, who, who's quite um, high risk um, because you know she's working as a direct consultant to large mining companies. Um, she doesn't have that sort of big corporate backing behind her, whereas, whereas Steve, he's an employee, yes, he's reasonably senior with his, within his um, company that he works at, but he, he's not a director of that company. He has um, the protection of knowing that the company will be sort of behind him if something did go wrong. So there's quite a disparity there in terms of risk. So typically what we would look at there is the consulting company would probably make Jenny the sole director of that company um, because you know she's doing the work but it, it means that Steve's not being put at unnecessary risk by also being a director of that company because obviously that um, directors uh, potentially do have a level of risk when they are directors of company and you know last thing we want is for Steve who's you know a fairly safe sort of bet to be dragged into something that um, we didn't even dragged into and then I guess alternatively we'd potentially have have Steve as the sole director of the corporate trustee and the corporate beneficiary again because he's low risk those entities should be relatively low risk as well so having the low risk person with the low risk entities and the high risk person with the high risk entities typically makes a bit more sense from, from where I stand. Yeah, no, look, that's definitely a good valid point. Uh, we do see it a few times where just the mum and dad are both the directors of every company and, and you're just like, well, there's no point in having that. Yeah. So you've got to understand, you know, sometimes if you both run a business together, it might make sense. Yeah. Uh, but generally, if you're trying to split out asset protection, well, then that kind of reduces it a little bit as well if you just Correct. have everyone be a director. So uh, once again, getting the right advice will really yield benefits there. Right. Um, so look, I think that that sort of wraps us up for today. I think that you know we've covered off, if you're looking to be a mining consultant or you already are and you're out and about setting up your own company, what are the things to cover off? Obviously we've gone through how to set up a structure, review your costs, your purpose and your commercial reasons. And then when you're implementing it, um, obviously speak with your advisor to make sure it's done right. Uh, don't just try and set it up yourself because you can uh, unfortunately cause a bit of headaches later on, at least get that initial advice. And once it is set up, like I said, don't rush out and buy a car. Um, actually go and have a chat and see whether it's worthwhile uh, setting that uh, company car up or not. Yeah. Uh, but look, hopefully that you, everyone listening here has got some benefits out of this. And if you want to hear more, by all means, reach out to Craig or myself on LinkedIn or visit, visit us on the William Buckle website. All right. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate you listening.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Resourceful, stories from the site. We'll be back in a month with more tips and insight from our other industry leaders. We'd love to connect with you. You can find us on all the usual social channels and our website, resourcesunearthed.com.au. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode.